0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. Our SJI 10-minute lesson series, which aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. There's our SJI interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas and our seminar series which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations of past events. This is one of those. In today's episode we can listen to the launch of our annual socioeconomic review, Social Justice Matters for 2021. We provide an analysis of the present situation on a wide range of issues and identify a programme of initiatives and policies that can address our challenges in an integrated and sustainable manner. We hope you enjoy it.
1: So, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, My name is Michelle Murphy. I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland, and I would like to welcome you all to the launch of Social Justice Matters 2021 Guide to a Fairer Irish Society. This afternoon, my colleagues, Dr. Sean Healy, Suzanne Rogers, Colette Bennett, and myself, will take you through the main policy areas covered in our annual socioeconomic review, give you an overview of some key issues and policy proposals for each chapter. And then we will wrap up with a question and answer session. So before I go any further, I just draw your attention to the question and answer function um, at the bottom of your screen there. So you can use it throughout the presentation. If you have any questions, put your questions in and we'll we'll get to them then in the Q&A session. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Social Justice Ireland. We're an independent social justice think tank, website, socialjustice.ie. We work to deliver and develop independent and credible social analysis to provide viable policy pathways forward to a sustainable future. Our goal is to influence the public debate to ensure that it focuses on what matters most to those who are poor or vulnerable or in need. And we work to improve public policy in order to improve society as a whole. In terms of Social Justice Matters 2021, it's our annual socioeconomic review. So it looks at the key long-term challenges facing Ireland and facing governments, looking at the trends, solutions, the evidence. We look at 10 key policy areas in particular. We provide in-depth and independent analysis and detailed policy proposals, and it's a key annual reference point on social justice and social policy issues. Now, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Dr. Sean Healy, to begin uh, the presentation of Social Justice Matters 2021.
2: Thanks, Michelle. Uh, 2020, the past year, was an extraordinary year. Uh, an unexpected pandemic uh, provided us with a sudden and immediate challenges. And, and in, interestingly enough, the response to them avoided the huge mistakes that government made in responding to the crash in 2008. This time around, uh, the fiscal response was correct. The focus was on protecting jobs and services and ensuring a minimum standard of living uh, could be maintained. Now, having experienced the impact of COVID-19 and uh, with the vaccination program being rolled out, many are reflecting on what the future holds, what future we should be working for what plans and approaches would be most likely to respond effectively to the challenges facing Ireland and the wider world at this crucial moment? Well, this reflection goes far beyond the immediate response to the pandemic about what we do the day after the lockdown finishes or whatever. Many believe that COVID-19 exposed weaknesses that already existed while the response to COVID-19 showed that government could in fact expand and adjust as required to protect both society and the economy. In this context, it should also be noted that the burden of the lockdown has fallen particularly on parents, especially mothers. Many have struggled to work from home while simultaneously homeschooling their children. The closing of schools has put a generation of children at risk of emotional damage and educational disadvantage, and those with uh, the least at the beginning of the lockdown are most likely to lose out the most. At particular risk are children in overcrowded homes without computers or fast broadband, children with additional needs as well. Now they're just one example, there are many others that we could uh, document. So what should our response be to this situation in which we find ourselves? Social justice Ireland believes that Ireland needs a new policy framework that would be effective in addressing the inequalities, the poverty, the exclusions that proliferate across our country. Uh, Fairer future, must be developed. That's why we are proposing the development of a new social contract. Earlier this year in our public, or earlier, just late last year, we, in our publication on the social contract, um, we called for a reboot of Ireland's social contract. now the social contract is the general agreement among citizens uh, and the state, between citizens and the state, uh, about the principles and goals to collectively address their common challenges. So if you think about it this way, after the Great Depression and the Second World War, there was a a new social contract became part of the reality in Western Europe. And we came to know that as the welfare state. It was created and implemented by political and academic elites at that time. In the last couple of decades of the 20th century from the 1980s, early 80s on, globalization imposed a new social contract, which we have come to know as neoliberalism led by multinational corporations and pro-business politicians. But that the, the, the neoliberalism uh, social contract was favor favored corporations and businesses most. Social justice Ireland is suggesting that a new contract is required that would address the core challenges we're now facing as a society, and that real citizen engagement should be at the core of such a contract. Now, in this publication, um, Social Justice Ireland identifies many policy recommendations for a new social contract. These proposals are designed to deliver a thriving economy, decent infrastructure and services, just taxation, good governance, and sustainability, five things. Um, These policies, uh, as they're developed, must be worked on simultaneously, not one after the other. So if we are to stop the boom to bust to boom to bust sequence we've experienced in recent decades, we've got to address these issues simultaneously. It's not a question of getting the economy right and everything else will follow. These policies, if implemented, the policies we're suggesting, would deliver a fair recovery and improve the quality of life for all. We need the investment in infrastructure and services if we're going to have a thriving economy but we also need just taxation to fund this whole process. We need good governance to ensure people have a say in shaping the decisions that impact on them. And we also need to ensure that everything that is done is sustainable environmentally, economically, and socially. So what we are looking at is the fact that change is necessary and that change is possible. In the past six decades, Ireland has had the welfare state followed that we talked about, plus followed by neoliberalism. Now the weaknesses of neoliberalism are well documented at this point. Change is required. The social contract we are proposing here in this publication today should be Ireland's guiding vision in the years immediately ahead. To achieve that vision, a new social dialogue is required uh, where issues may be discussed in a deliberative manner. Social contract would be the vision, social dialogue would be the process. And this new social dialogue should involve government, trade unions and employers the community and voluntary pillar, as well as farmers and the environmental pillar. Any structure for social dialogue that excludes any of these groups would be a recipe for ensuring that most of Ireland's resources would be captured by those participating in the discussion, those not participating directly in it, uh, would, would would be the losers in effect. Such an approach would simply lead to deepening divisions and growing inequality in Ireland. At the core of the new model of social dialogue is not the drive towards cost competitiveness, although that is incorporated through the wage bargaining process and productivity improvements and so on, but a broad-based enhancement of capabilities in the economy and society. These do not emerge spontaneously, however. The role of civil society, where community and voluntary sector are particularly important in Ireland, is critical in this process. Dialogue is the means by which Different sectors could negotiate to agree on a future they wish to achieve and set out pathways towards reaching that destination and heal any disagreements and divisions in the process. As Ireland moves into a post-COVID world, it needs to cure the virus of social injustice, inequality, marginalization, and environmental destruction. In its place, it needs a new social contract and a new social dialogue to facilitate movement towards that social contract. To do this, Social Justice Ireland's new social contract proposals would see government policy focused, as I've said already, on delivering five outcomes simultaneously. A vibrant economy, decent infrastructure and services, just taxation, good governance, and sustainability. This approach is not simply doable. It's also desirable, effective, and efficient. It's time for change. So continuing uh, this presentation, I hand you over to my colleague, Colette Bennett.
3: Thanks so much, Sean. Um, So just looking in terms of the the long term challenges that face government, the challenges facing government aren't confined to the pandemic. And that was something that the Minister for Finance himself acknowledged yesterday in his address in relation to COVID and the euro for the, the Dublin economics workshop. Before COVID, we had a market-driven housing system, we had inequality, we had demographic changes that will lead to growing dependency ratio and increase in pension spending and greater demand for services and infrastructure. We had high rates of underemployment and low-paid employment, a two-tiered healthcare system with access and treatment dependent on your ability to pay rather than your need. Climate change, on which Ireland is a self-professed laggard. The need for a just transition to deal with the challenges of climate change and to ensure that those who will be most adversely affected will be supported in their transition. And the decline of rural communities which saw demographic shifts to an older population with greater risk of poverty and fewer amenities, public services and social outlets. Add to that the rise in unemployment brought about by this pandemic. It's currently at 25% but the employment rate will reduce as we emerge from this crisis. Even with that, it's still likely to be twice the pre-pandemic rate. That's why we need a new social contract. So moving on to what that policy framework might look like, we put forward a series of proposals across five pillars, which, if delivered, as Sean said, simultaneously, could support the delivery of a new and fair social contract. We need that vibrant economy. We know we need to deal with the deficit and to do so in a sustainable way. We need to build a stable financial system that enables us to boost public investment, creating decent jobs and reducing inequality. We need decent services and infrastructure. We need to increase investment in both long term infrastructure and the ongoing current expenditure of staffing, maintenance and upgrading. We need quality services so that no one is left behind. My colleagues and I will discuss in greater detail what those services might look like a bit later, but there needs to be supports for those who are furthest away from accessing these services. And we need to provide a minimum social floor. Part of that will be the development of quality universal basic services, but also of a universal basic income so that everyone has enough to live a life with dignity. Those services and infrastructure obviously need to be paid for. And we do that through the development of that vibrant economy that I just talked about, and by ensuring that the taxation we collect is just. We need to increase our overall tax take and broaden our tax base. And we need robust tax governance, particularly in the area of tax expenditures. We need good governance generally, open, transparent and accountable structures real and meaningful social dialogue that goes beyond the labour employer economic forum trade unions and and business representatives but allows for all stakeholders to participate and we need for that participation to be meaningful leading to real deliberative democracy rather than mere tokenism in all of this we need sustainability this is not confined to climate change and climate justice it must go to the core of our systems and policies There's no point in creating more jobs if you need three of them to scrape a living. Yes, we need climate justice and yes, we need to protect the environment, but we also need more balanced regional development, something that Michelle will expand on a little bit later, but which will be even more necessary if the reports of households relocating from urban areas to more rural areas are to be believed. And we need a better system of measurement, a sustainable progress index that goes beyond the problematic measure of GDP and moves us towards well-being budgets for our society and greater accountability in respect of our environment. All five of these pillars, as Sean said, need to be worked on simultaneously. It's not a question of getting the economy right and, and everything else will follow. That hasn't worked. That approach has led us from boom to bust and boom to bust and this must end. So how do we build that new social contract? Well, we need to start with the fundamentals. In rebuilding our economy, we must do so with a view to making it work for the good of society, instead of actively acting against it. This will require new approaches to the world of work and a recognition of much of the work done in society that goes unpaid, under-recognised and undervalued. It will also require recognition that our tax and welfare systems are not fit for purpose in the 21st century. The time has come to set a minimum floor of income and services below which no one should fall. The social welfare system and the income tax credit system should be replaced by a universal basic income, which will be far more appropriate for today's economy. This should be accompanied by the development of universal basic services to secure the well-being of all. A new social contract will also require us to give climate action the priority it urgently needs. The response to COVID-19 shows that society can be mobilized quickly and effectively to address a real and present danger, and climate change represents such a danger, but the policies so far have been wholly inadequate. We now know that we can respond quickly and effectively to major threats, An effective response to climate change must figure prominently in our new social contract. Even at the earliest stages of this pandemic, the critical value of having an effective public sector was illustrated. The focus of recent decades on constantly reducing the role of the public sector and moving towards privatisation has been shown to be wrong. We cannot settle for a 2 tier healthcare system when this pandemic has passed. Ireland will emerge from the pandemic with a larger public sector, something acknowledged by the Minister for Finance yesterday. We must ensure that this change delivers the foundation of a new social contract, that everyone benefits from a larger public sector, and that these need much-needed services and infrastructure are adequately resourced going forward. So in terms then of funding a new social contract, setting aside the COVID-19 related expenditures, which will be ring-fenced for the next two years and beyond, it must be acknowledged that while this social contract we describe is eminently deliverable, it will obviously cost money. This requires an acknowledgement from government and from people that Ireland's current model of revenue generation doesn't provide the resources necessary to deliver the public services, the social infrastructure, or the income supports that Ireland actually needs in order to vindicate our rights. It's simply not possible to provide the high quality public services Irish people aspire to having while failing to collect adequate revenue to pay for them. As a policy objective, Ireland can remain a relatively low tax economy and still collect sufficient revenue to meet the economic, social, and infrastructural requirements necessary to support our society and complete our convergence with the rest of Europe. Ireland can never hope to address its long-term deficits in these two areas if we continue to collect substantially less income than that's required by other European countries to stand still. If Ireland is to increase its total tax take, it must do so in a fair and equitable manner. We believe that the necessary extra revenue be partly raised by increasing income taxes for those on highest incomes and partly by reforming the tax code and I'll expand a little bit on that later on. Reforming governance and widening participation must remain a key goal. To secure a new social contract participation by various sectors of society is essential. One component of real participation is the recognition that everyone should have the right to participate in shaping the society in which they live and the decisions that impact on them. Ireland needs real, regular and structured debate involving all stakeholders on an equal footing to ensure that all interest groups and all sectors of society can contribute to the discussion and the decision-making on the kind of society Ireland wishes to actually build. So now I'm going to pass you on to Michelle.
1: Thanks Colette. Now uh so now we're going to start with the uh, I suppose the policy issues and the first of the policy issues The book is Income Distribution, and I'm just going to look at one particular issue here. How can we set a minimum floor of income to address poverty and inequality? So despite improvements in poverty rates in recent years, we still face a challenge in terms of inequality, income distribution and poverty. Still have 12.8% of the population or about 629,000 people living below the poverty line, of which 190,000 are children. And without the social welfare system, actually four in every 10 people in the Irish population would be living in poverty. So this shows us the heavy lifting that the social welfare system does in terms of moving people out of poverty, the importance, of course, social welfare rates, and the challenge of an unequal distribution of direct income. Now, we have seen progress in recent years in terms of poverty rates, and that's primarily down to increases in social welfare rates. Which were very welcome and something which social justice Ireland has advocated for for many years of concern is that the past two budgets core welfare rates were left unchanged so any progress we have seen will stall and then on top of that you have the impact of the pandemic which will have a a considerable impact on those who are already vulnerable and those who are worst off. In terms of policy solutions then we have the roadmap for social inclusion uh, which the Iraqis committee is discussing today I think you should set a goal of eliminating poverty in a single five-year dual term. And in particular, you need to focus on the issue of social welfare payments and maintaining adequate levels of payments. So Social Justice Ireland would propose that we benchmark a uh, minimum social welfare rate. So the core rate to movements and average earnings. So you benchmark it against 27.5% of average weekly earnings. Um, now the difference between the two is the benchmark is 222 years a week. The core social welfare rate is 203. So you have a shortfall of 19 euro to make up we would propose that government could do this over two or three budgets. Once you reach your benchmark, then the, the goal is to index social welfare rates against the minimum essential budget standards and the minimum standard of living. If you do this, then you can reach your poverty targets. You can address the ch- challenges of child poverty, family poverty, household poverty, and you can address the issues of very high numbers of people with a disability, for example, living in poverty and the issue of the working poor. Um, which uh, Colette will discuss again in the employment uh, section. But ultimately, if we are going to meet our poverty goals and address income distribution, income inequality, we do need to focus on core social welfare rates. And I'll hand back over to Colette now to look at taxation and employment. Thank you very much, Michelle.
3: Um, So in terms of taxation, the core policy objective here Um, is to collect sufficient taxes to ensure full participation in society for all through a fair taxation system in which those who have more pay more while those who have less pay less. Sounds reasonable. Uh, Government decisions need to be linked to the demands on its resources, so those demands depend on what government is required to address or they decide themselves to pursue. The effects of the economic crisis a decade ago and the way it was handled continue to carry significant implications for our future taxation needs. Similarly, the need for the state to rescue or support so many aspects of our economy and society during the current pandemic has triggered large-scale borrowing and further liabilities um, to both service and repay this debt. We believe that there is merit in developing a tax package which places less emphasis on taxing people and organizations on what they earn by their own useful work and enterprise or what they, or on the value they add or what they contribute to the common good. Rather, to the tax that people and organizations should be required to pay should be based on the value that they subtract by their use of common resources. Whatever changes are made should also be guided by the need to build a fairer taxation system One which adheres to our already stated core policy objective. Recent budgets have made a start on this but there are a number of approaches available to government in reforming the tax base set out in the taxation chapter of our publication being launched today. Suggestions that higher rates of taxation would hinder Ireland's competitiveness are not borne out in the various studies available and that is something that needs to be made quite clear because it is something that is is levied every time we, we bring out these proposals. In order to create a more just taxation system, we need to move Ireland's overall level of taxation to reach a level equivalent to €15,000 Euro per capita in 2017 terms. This target should increase then each year in line with growth and modified um, gross national income. This would still le- see us in the same position compared to per capita income or per, t- per capita taxation um, across the EU. We also need to make all discretionary tax reliefs or expenditures only available at the standard 20% rate. Support fair changes to income taxes. There should be no reduction in taxation. In fact, any future money should be used to improve our public services along the lines mentioned earlier, and that will be explored in greater uh, detail later on. To introduce a system of refundable tax credits to support the working poor. To reform the tax system to support individualization. The process of individualisation followed so far to date has been deeply flawed and unfair. The cost of the exchequer of this transition has been more than three quarters of a billion euro, and almost all of this money went to the highest income, 30% of the population. A significantly fairer process would have been to introduce a basic income system. And finally, on this point, we need to make the taxation system simpler discriminatory tax concessions in favor of particular positions are often very inequitable contributing far less to equality than might appear to be the case moving on then to work and our poor hol- our core policy objective apologies here is to ensure that all people have access to meaningful work so based on our calculations, we're looking at doubling of the pre-pandemic unemployment rate, a rate not seen since the height of the last crash. And in terms of the number of people, an additional 140,000 people unemployed post-pandemic, as many of the the people currently being supported through the pandemic unemployment payment and the employee wage subsidy scheme have those payments tapered off and removed. We need to tackle underemployment. This is part-time workers who would like and are available to work more hours than they currently have. We've seen a loss of 6.6 million hours of work in 2020, predominantly in sectors dominated by women and low-paid workers. Even when business starts to recover, many workers will be returning to jobs on less hours than they would have had previously. In terms of long-term unemployment, an issue that was there before the pandemic will remain, and we need to ensure that there are tailored measures to support the long-term unemployed that are separate to those 140,000 people or so more recently unemployed and which are likely unlikely to return to employment as recovery begins. We need to have much more tailored and measured approaches. We know that youth unemployment has been a particular feature of this pandemic, again given the sectors that are most affected. We've made recent improvements on our rate of those not in employment, education or training and this effort needs to be ramped up to support the newly unemployed youth and prevent a long-term youth unemployment crisis. In terms of policy proposals, government could start by acknowledging that work is not synonymous with paid employment. Many unpaid care or workers, carers, those predominantly women who work in the home, volunteers, have provided essential work during this pandemic and need to be recognized for the value that they provide. We need to invest in infrastructure programs that focus on the social good local and regional construction and development projects for housing which will bring much needed money into the local and regional economies and have the capacity to provide housing within communities for the whole of the life cycle from family homes to student accommodations to first-time homes to smaller homes for older people who may wish to downsize without leaving their communities and their support systems behind Other infrastructure projects too, such as schools, community health networks, playgrounds, they all contribute to the well-being of the local inhabitants while creating jobs and stimulating local economies. As mentioned earlier, we need to address the worrying level of youth unemployment and develop policies and programmes to support young workers in the aftermath of the pandemic. And we need to resource upskilling more generally, not only to tackle the recently unemployed, but to retrain and reskill workers and sectors at risk from globalisation and climate change initiatives. And now I'm going to move on to, to Suzanne Rogers.
0: Thanks, Colette. We're going to look at the housing system now. Um, housing is the most fundamental of our needs. Without a home, development and growth are put on hold. Participation and community engagement are difficult to imagine. Other rights have to wait. We must ensure that adequate and appropriate accommodation is available for all people and we must develop an equitable system for allocating resources within the housing sector. Households are being simply priced out of both rental and retail housing markets. To rent or buy is difficult, if not impossible, for households either on a single or an average wage. There has to be more state investment in social and affordable, and I mean truly affordable housing, and a cost rental model should be introduced as an affordable rental model. The over-reliance on the private sector to deliver social housing has proved to be both expensive and inefficient. The economic demands of the market in the form of banks and landlords are in direct conflict with the social and community housing needs of the individual. Many simply need more housing than they can afford at market rates. We must deliver more social housing. Currently in Ireland, social housing counts for just 9% of all housing compared to some of our peers across Europe. Who have 20% social housing. We should be aiming for this target as a way of ensuring that all have access to affordable housing. This lack of social housing and the reliance on the market to deliver a public good has resulted in the increase in homelessness witnessed over the last decade and more and in particular family homelessness. The figures for January 2021 are stark. 5,987 homeless adults. 126 of them are over the age of 65. No one should be retiring into homelessness. There are still 966 families with 2,026 children. Homelessness is still a major issue and it requires an intersectional, cross-departmental approach. The housing-first approach works and it must be extended to families who need it. Families cannot function as families whilst in hubs, hotels and bed and breakfasts. Children have nowhere to play, nowhere to do their homework, they've nowhere to make noise, they've nowhere to mess, they've nowhere to fight, they've nowhere to storm off to in a sulk when everybody lives in the same room. Time limits must be placed on family stays and emergency accommodation to limit this damage. At the end of December 2020, there were 543 children who have been without a home of their own for over two years. Children and families are at risk of becoming institutionalised. Children's social, physical, emotional and educational development are all delayed whilst without a home space. They must be a priority for government at every level to ensure that they are really and truly the last generation to be forced to live like this. Rebuilding Ireland 2016-21 to is almost at an end. It's unlikely to deliver on its build targets. We must rethink now how we deliver housing and ensure that the public good is placed before private profits. I'll pass back to Colette for the next section. Thank you. Thanks, Suzanne. Um, firstly, in relation to health,
3: many of you will all know this already, but essentially health is not just about health care. The link between poverty and ill health is well established by international and national research. People with low incomes are less likely to see a doctor because access to preventative services is concentrated among the better off. One of the most obvious concerns about the Irish healthcare system is about access. Ireland's health system ranked 22nd out of 35 countries in the 2019 health consumer powerhouse report. But on the issue of accessibility, Ireland ranked the worst. That report notes that even if we had a waiting list, we reached our waiting list target of 18 months, it still would be the worst time situation in Europe. Pre-pandemic, Irish hospitals were working at almost full capacity. The occupancy rate for acute care hospital beds is among the highest in the OECD countries and it's 20 percentage points higher than the OECD average. Also, by comparison with other OECD countries, the share of the Irish population delaying or going without care is also comparatively high, above 30%. There are also barriers in access to primary care, delays in accident and emergency department admissions, and high waiting times for access to hospital care in the public system. In terms of access, those who are poor and sick without medical cards fare worst. In 2017, almost one in three households where at least one person had a medical examination or treatment in the last 12 months reported that costs were a financial burden. For households with children, the corresponding rate was higher at over 35%. Moving to COVID, and we can't talk healthcare without it, the new COVID GeoHive site is really interesting. The impact of COVID-19 has not been immune to the disparities between socioeconomic groups. So. Taking a point in time, as of the 10th of March 2021, the 14-day national incidence rate of COVID-19 was 201.2 per 100,000 people. But as we know, not all areas are created equally. COVID-19 infection rates are up to 50% or more higher in disadvantaged areas compared to more affluent areas. Take Dublin as an example, a county with a range of socioeconomic profiles. While the national incident rate was 201.2 per 100,000 people, this compares to 163.1 in Blackrock, 144.2 in Dundrum, 165.7 in Hoth Malahide, and 122.5 in Dunleary. Moving north of the border, we go North Inner City has a rate of 415, more than twice the national rate. Ballymun Finglas is more than two and a half times the national rate, with 523. 3.5 and so it goes for similar areas. These numbers are stark and they reveal the impact of poverty, of a lack of service provision and a lack of safe employment and clearly debunk the myth that COVID-19 was a great leveller. The pandemic has created many issues but it also provides an opportunity for government to finally grasp the nettle of healthcare inequality, to address our two-tiered system and to invest in primary care, community healthcare networks and and statutory rights to home care. To allow people to age well at home and create the environment within communities has been proven to have a positive impact on all of these issues that I spoke about just earlier on. It also frees up our spaces in acute hospitals for those who actually need acute care and can reduce our capacity rate below that 95%. Government needs to continue to properly fund Sláinte Care, including the 500 million investment in infrastructure that was committed to every year for the first six years. And we we welcomed the, the measures in that regard in budget 2021. We need more GPs and community healthcare teams. We need to properly address the waiting lists, particularly for mental health supports in the years beyond this pandemic. I'm gonna hand you back now to Michelle.
1: Thanks, Colette. So I'm just going to look at education now, uh, educational disadvantage, and I suppose particularly I just want to look at the issue of uh, addressing the impact of lost learning on students in the past 12 months. So um, we know that there's been an impact on students at all levels, but it will be felt most by those students who are most disadvantaged. I mean, Ireland already has a, an achievement gap between pupils. Uh, from disadvantaged areas and uh, their their peers um, and we have been making progress. It has stalled since 2012 but uh, the pandemic is likely to um, uh, reverse many of the gains that we have made. Uh, in addition to this uh, students are facing long-term losses in income as a result of the interruption in learning. You're looking around three percent for uh, students as a whole but the loss will be greater for those students from disadvantaged areas. Uh, this was a challenge in Ireland prior to COVID. Even if you looked at um, those who graduated from from higher education, um, those graduates from more affluent areas earned around two thousand euros more a year on average than their peers in the same course from disadvantaged areas. And even when you do control from different factors, uh, graduates from disadvantaged backgrounds earn on average about six hundred euros less after graduation than their peers. So we can see that we had a challenge with disadvantage uh, and educational attainment prior to COVID and the impact of the past 12 months will simply exacerbate that. So what are the policy proposals available to us? Well, uh, as a a start, we should make the improvement of educational outcomes for people from disadvantaged backgrounds and communities a policy priority looking at what additional resources are needed in terms of addressing persistent disadvantage. In particular, looking at the demographic changes coming down the line at primary, second second level in particular, how we can adjust in terms of reducing our class sizes and people-teacher ratio, how we adapt our curriculum to make it fit for purpose, not just fit for purpose for a a technological change, but uh, equipping young people with the ability to think critically and analytically to make decisions and apply their skills creatively and adapt to change and particularly then going beyond just uh, those uh, in our, our schooling system but looking at education and training as a whole and meeting the changes that we are going to face in terms of just transition and uh, digitization we have to look at our skills and our lifelong learning and looking at having a, a sustainable and appropriately funded education system that takes a life cycle approach from early childhood right through to adulthood. Now I'm going to pass back to Suzanne for the participation.
0: Thanks, Michelle. There's a lack of social dialogue. We've already heard about a need for social dialogue at a national level. However, our communities at a local level also need to have a more central role in the development of policies that affect them. We ask that the public participation networks are adequately resourced and that social dialogue is promoted at a local level. Community and citizen engagement is vital in the formation of policy responses to the issues and problems that impact our daily lives. By fostering an environment of inclusion and empowerment, local people and local authorities can work together to improve their communities for all. This engagement is critical as Ireland strives to implement the sustainable development goals and well-being at a local and regional level. We need to ensure that all people from different cultures are well- welcomed in a way that's consistent with our history our economic status and our obligations as world citizens. We need to ensure that every person has a genuine voice in shaping the decisions that affect them and that every person can contribute to the development of their society. The Programme for Government 2020 made a commitment to ending the system of direct provision for those in the international protection process. We welcome the publication of the white paper and urge government to meet the targets within. Those who choose to make Ireland their home must be allowed to participate fully. The transformational power of education benefits everybody and we ask that investment be made in skills transfer programs for immigrants into Ireland. The participation of immigrants in all aspects of economic, cultural and social life in Ireland must be encouraged. The COVID-19 pandemic highlighted the inequalities in our society, especially for those living in overcrowded conditions for whom maintaining safe distances from other households and having somewhere safe to isolate was an impossibility. 2020 was the first year since 2014 that the full traveller housing budget was drawn down by local authorities spending 15 million of the 14 and a half million allocation, the largest spend in decades. We call on government to ensure funding for traveller specific initiatives and to implement the recommendations of the Shannon committee report on travellers. Irish society has changed significantly over the last 50 years. We are moving more towards urban living and more and more of us are better educated. We are having fewer babies and we are living longer and many of us were born elsewhere. Our services must adapt to reflect and support these changes to our demographics. Housing planning must ensure that we can age well within our chosen communities. Childcare must be affordable and accessible to encourage and support working parents and particularly women in the workplace. Good quality, reliable, affordable broadband is more important than ever before ensuring that households can access information, work, education, banking, groceries, and remain connected to their social networks. Transport links must be reliable and affordable. Every citizen must be afforded the means to flourish and engage in a meaningful way in our society. Therefore, we must implement the national strategies for the community and voluntary sector to fully realize the goal of full participation. Thank you, I'm gonna pass you back to Michelle.
1: Thanks Suzanne. Now, looking at uh, sustainability in the environment, uh, looking at how we promote the sustainability agenda and meet our climate targets in a fair way, I suppose, particularly today, given the Climate Action Bill. So we all know the challenges that we face, uh, we're not on track to meet our 2020 targets, despite the slowdown as a result of the pandemic, and neither are we on track to meet our 2030 targets. Um, Difficult decisions regarding emissions reductions have been consistently delayed by consecutive governments, which makes implementing new policies even more challenging. However, something we can't ignore is that there must be sectoral change. It's not just down to the individual or to communities. We have to look at how each sector can contribute in order so that we meet our national ambitions, we meet our targets and we do this in a fair way. So first off, we need to look at our taxation system, for example, and there's incoherence there. We we're subsidizing uh, activities that are harmful environmentally and fossil fuel activities, while at the same time we're looking at how we adopt our taxation system to promote environmentally friendly activities. There's a certainly additional budgetary space for our government when looking at climate policy to focus on these subsidies in particular and remove those which are damaging and use this uh, revenue uh, towards meeting, for example, uh, retrofitting targets towards reducing food weights and towards uh, it promoting circular economy. We should be setting ambitious emissions reductions targets. I know some of those will be outlined in the bill today, but we have to ensure that sufficient resources are provided to support the implementation of these targets and it's implementation here that is key and meeting our national ambition. Continued support for certain sectors should be contingent on stronger conditionality. For example, if this is coming via the new Common Agricultural Policy. There's going to be a much stronger fo- focus on sustainable agricultural practices. We have to see how that translates here in terms of short supply chains for farmers and consumers, better prices for farmers, but a more sustainable agricultural p- policy. So we don't have emissions increasing in one sector while our national target is to reduce them. And finally, we should be uh, implementing a sustainable development framework into economic policy so that all decision made are sustainable environmentally, economically and socially. And it's only in that way that we will have a truly just transition which doesn't leave anybody behind and which invests in those social priorities that will enable and support those people and communities and sectors to make that transition in transforming how our economy and our society operates. And actually, this leads me on then to the issue of rural Ireland and how do we ensure that rural Ireland is not left behind, not just in context of the the pandemic uh, or Brexit, but the the challenge of climate change and a digital transition. So we know the challenges that uh, rural and regional policies face in terms of higher poverty rates, uh, lower median incomes, higher dependency ratios, uh, greater difference from everyday services and a higher rate of part-time employment. These all existed prior to covid um, the challenge is the impact on COVID on rural areas It will be significant and lasting because many of the drivers of the rural economy now having moved from being primarily agricultural are more diverse, but there are those sectors such as accommodation, hospitality, food and services, which have been uh, dev- had a devastating impact as a result of COVID and they will be very slow to reopen. So we need to look at how we're going to support rural Ireland to contribute to our recovery, how we take advantage that of the possibilities that remote working presents us in terms of offering people career progression, a better quality of life. Uh, but we have to invest in things like the remote working hubs beyond to ensure that we can make this a possibility for people. So in terms of policy then, uh, where the, the new rural development policy uh, is it's yet to be published, we look forward to seeing it, but we have to make our public investment choices that, that are balanced. They need to be linked to assessment of regional or local characteristics, looking at um, you know, what is the local labor supply? What are the food chains? What are the local services that are available in a particular area? How can we build on those? What is the skill sets? So ha- how can we, implement local policies that can adapt to local issues it requires resourcing Uh, we you know we need the political will obviously but we need to put the money into these communities we need to roll out broadband as quickly as possible reliable broadband we need to promote integrated spatial planning we need to connect rural people smes and micro enterprises with skills and lifelong educational training opportunities and Ultimately, we need to ensure that we can involve all stakeholders in a a transition around the changes that are coming, but ensure that rural areas have the institutional capacity and good governments to respond to this discussion. And to fulfill their roles in terms of delivering a high quality of life for residents and vibrant rural communities, not just for the current generation, but for future generations. I'm going to pass over to Colette now to to, uh, look at the the global site and global development.
3: Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, Excuse me. So essentially our goal here is to ensure that Ireland plays an active and effective part in promoting sustainable development in the global south and to ensure that all of Ireland's policies are consistent with that development. So today, for example, average life expectancy is 20 years higher for people in the richest countries compared to those in Sub-Saharan Africa. The UN reports that almost one in three adults in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa are unable to read. These inequalities are also reflected In the sizeable differences in income levels and in mortality rates. Less developed countries are generally more affected by climate change than industrialized countries. Heatwave fueled droughts are being felt first and foremost in developing countries, however those countries most at risk of heatwaves are most underrepresented in the research. The effects of climate change have increased the vulnerability of many communities, leading to enforced migration, internal displacement, poverty, hunger and even death. Food production is a huge challenge for communities who are constantly forced to move. This is why overseas development assistance is so important. The United Nations agreed target for developed countries like Ireland is to provide 0.7% of national income in development aid. While welcome increases have been made in respect of Ireland's ODA contribution recently, the shortfalls during the austerity years have still not been regained. This limits the resources available for tackling extreme poverty, tackling hunger and human rights abuses. This funding is needed now more than ever as developing countries attempt to get to grips with COVID-19 and see themselves last in the line for vaccines and the resultant economic disruption. Budget 2021 allocated 837 million in overseas aid, so 0.42% of modified gross national income. Reaching the UN goal of 0.7% in the years ahead will require increased effort. Our own national recovery from this pandemic should not interfere with our international obligations, particularly to those who are most vulnerable to global shocks, such as a pandemic and climate change. Ireland still lacks a strategy for reaching the UN target and missed opportunity in the publication of the Better World and um, Ireland's policy for international development in February, 2019. Further policies also need to be developed and adopted to respond to the current challenges being experienced by the Global South, such as taking far more proactive stances at government level on ensuring that Ireland and EU policies towards countries in the Global South are just, ensuring that businesses operating in developing countries, in particular Irish aid country partners, are subject to proper scrutiny and engage in sustainable development practices, playing a prominent role in the support and implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals continuing to support the international campaign for the liberation of the poorest nations from the burden of the backlog of unpayable debt, working for changes in the existing international trading regimes to encourage fairer and sustainable forms of trade, and taking a leadership position within Europe and broader international arenas to encourage other states to fund programmes and research aimed at taking a person-centred approach to the HIV and AIDS crisis. And I'm going to now hand you back over to Sean.
2: Thanks, Colette. And uh, as we bring this presentation to a resolution, if you like, and uh, start to uh, look at questions and things that need to be addressed. Um, we, I just point out um, we have a, a quotation at the end of last year's edition, the last edition of uh, Social Justice Matters, from an unlikely source, maybe coming, people might think coming from Social Justice Ireland, but from Milton Friedman. Back in 1982, he said, or he wrote, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. Our basic function is to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Now, I would say how very apt given the year that we've just had. Um, I'd also say that a lot of what we have been setting out in this um, presentation uh, published today as Social Justice Matters 2021, um, what we would be saying is that maybe there's quite a lot of things in there that might until recently have been seen as politically impossible, but are now becoming politically inevitable. The design and implementation of a recovery after the COVID-19 crisis will reshape our society and economy for future generations. It's important that we get these decisions right. Ireland's economic growth in recent years has been spread very unevenly. We can reverse that trend and we can improve our well-being and living standards if we take this opportunity to implement real change. As Ireland moves into a post-COVID world, it needs to cure the virus of social injustice of inequality, marginalization, and environmental destruction. In its place, Ireland needs a new social contract. A new social contract is not simply doable. It's also desirable, effective, and efficient. It's time for change. I hand back to Michelle.
1: Thank you, Sean and Colette and Suzanne. And thank you, everyone. As I mentioned, and as Sean mentioned, the Q&A function is there, and also we have some items in the chat function as well. But I'll first of all, I will go to a question in the Q&A from Alex Piggott. Uh, I'll pass it over to Colette, looking at some examples of tax increases. That you propose. So, for example, uh, increasing the rate of tax paid on rentier income as opposed to PAYE, looking at site value tax, um, Tobin taxes, or taxing public sector employee pensions.
2: You're you're muted.
3: I'm mute, of course, sorry. Um, Thanks very much, Alex. And I can actually kill two birds with one stone in this one because there's also a similar question in relation to our tax proposals um, from Dr. Aidan Kenny in the the chat function in relation to what changes to taxation are needed to support the provision of quality home units for all and to stop homelessness. Um, You know, I I think in terms of, of taxation, proposals overall we have a series of them so as I said you know we need to look at things like increasing the overall tax rate broadening the tax base and making the system fairer so increasing the overall tax take for example we need to move toward the tax take Um, that that puts us more in line with average European levels. So I had mentioned that figure of um, 15,000 per capita at 2017 uh, rates. So that's really the level of collection we're looking at. But in terms of how we go about that, or how we certainly would propose to go about that, you know, we need to look at reforming that whole area around tax expenditures so when we reviewed the data on 2018 tax expenditures the discretionary expenditures account for 15.8 billion so that is a huge pot of money that's not being properly scrutinized under the budgetary process and that needs to actually be brought um, within those processes brought into within those kind of annual review processes and there's a that there's a great amount of work being done by the parliamentary budget office and by the Octus oversight committee but more is needed in relation to looking at kind of sunset clauses looking at the usefulness of these expenditures where are they actually going who are they benefiting and what could we do with them if we were collecting that money rather than forgoing it um in terms then of you know increasing the, the minimum effective Uh, tax rates on higher earners so those with incomes in excess of 125,000 so that those rates are consistent with the level faced by PAYE workers and we'd move to negotiate the EU wide agreement on the minimum corporate tax rates. Um, adopt policies to ensure that corporations are paying a minimum effective corporate tax rate of of 10%, but as an interim measure, introduce a 6% rate for the next budget, for budget 2022. Um, Impose charges so that those who construct or purchase second homes pay the full infrastructural costs on those dwellings. And we would also propose reintroducing the um, non-principal private residence uh, tax at a rate of €500 euro per annum um, and a vacant homes tax at a rate of €200 euro per annum. Um, restoring the 80% windfall gains tax on the profits generated from land rezonings, and certainly in relation to Aidan's question, that is something that could potentially be ring-fenced to look at you know, generating the income that is required to build homes on state lands, um, the type of thing that, that Suzanne mentioned in her presentation. Um, in terms of then financial transaction taxes, we could, we should join with other EU member states to adopt a financial transactions tax, um, and and really discourage this market speculation, and adopt policies generally which which further shift the burden of taxation from income tax to eco taxes and the, the consumption of fuel and, and fertilizers and waste taxes and rent taxes, and in doing so government could minimise any negative impact on people with low incomes by introducing systems that, that, that deal with that type of, of hardship, that financial hardship. So that, that's those two questions hopefully answered. Thanks,
1: um, Colette. And there is, uh, just I'll address briefly the issue about the high quality public funded education and training uh, system from Dr. Aidan Kenny, and also the digital divide. I suppose we're still... No matter what way we look at look at, there's uh, increased government funding is going to be required, particularly in terms of higher education. I mean, we're still awaiting the the report from the European Commission on their economic evaluation of the funding options. In the Castles report, um, it is expected in quarter one this year, and at, at that point, then decisions are going to have to be made. Uh, we have kind of, I suppose, pushed or it's been pushed down the road that decision but either way you look at it uh increased resources uh and increased public money will be required and in terms of the digital divide then in terms of COVID-19 I suppose that came out in the research that I suppose COVID-19 sort of pushed um online learning on to us and it showed the benefits but it also showed um the things that online learning cannot do um and you know the challenges that it still faces so But in terms of the digital divide for households, for children, for younger people, but also in terms that in terms of learning and the input of a skilled practitioner a teacher or a lecturer and learning from your peers and learning from each other, that cannot be replicated by online learning. Online learning certainly has a role to play, but I I think what we see now is how are we going to integrate it into our system going forward? What sort of infrastructural changes need to be made so that everyone has, you know, decent access to broadband, to ICT, etc. But also, what do we value about um, the other learning systems that we have and how do we combine them? And there is an issue there. There's a couple of things coming through. I can just actually pop in on the employer's contribution as well.
3: Just in relation to their actual financial contribution, obviously, there was a a move made in budget 2018 to increase the the levy in relation to the the National Training Fund. But where employers can actually play a really significant role is in um, the provision of in-work training, uh, particularly for those who are uh, employers of of unskilled or lower-skilled employees. It's in order for them to actually access opportunities to grow and to develop as businesses grow and develop in, ter- in response to things like automation and, and globalization.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's been been shown and it'll be in the education chapter of social justice matters that actually you get the greater return by skilling lower skilled workers, particularly at a regional level. That's why it's so important to support those employers to invest in skills. There's a note from Jerry Brady regarding the 2019 fossil fuel subsidies, which are going to be released in the next one to two weeks. And I suppose he makes a point that we have made consistently as you move towards eco taxes and um, having the, the the cost of, I suppose, emissions within the taxation systems, you will see decreases from excises and car, uh, road fuel taxes. But at the same time, you are going to have to invest in the infrastructure for electric vehicles, for example. So we need to look at how we readjust our tax system to deal with this changing reality. Now, Sean, there's a question in the- um, i come back
2: to that one just to finish the, yeah. the one that Jerry Brady is raised, because is, 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 I, I think that's a, a very important issue. In terms of the public debate that there will be people basically saying oh well we're going to lose all this so we can't we're going to lose all this income that we would have been getting from fossil fuels and so on and um, we're going to have to sort of cut back rather than facing what we've been outlining here and which uh, several of us have been presenting earlier in our presentations which is basically that as a society we need to face the fact that there needs to be a further shift in the burden of taxation away from income tax to eco taxes and uh, consumption of fuels and fertilizers and waste taxes and site value tax and the Tobin tax that, that uh, somebody suggested and so on. Like, uh, and the, the various taxes that have been suggested uh, by Colette in her piece and yourself as well, Michelle. Like the, the, there's a fundamental piece here that needs to be grasped, which is that overall we have to broaden the tax base and increase the tax take. And while, and that's going to have to be done on a moving platform, if you like, because we're going to be losing income from, from a number of different sources and if we're going to go the right route, we say in COP in, in, in on the COP uh, commitments and all that that we're supposed to be doing, including even meeting the commitments on the bill that's going through the law today or going, going into your office today. I come back to the point that you were going to. You were directing to me, me too, which was Sheila Cronin's question. Is it about um, uh, something more Brexit. about something about Brexit? Uh, I, I think the the critical issue is, to coin a phrase, that Brexit hasn't gone away. Uh, like that the the reality is that Brexit is going to be affecting us for quite a while. And um, part of the issue that we have to face up to, I suppose, is that. Um, there are two different, completely different levels to this. There's the kind of level of uh, what arrangements need to be made and kind of um, the markets and the tax bo- and the border taxes and cross- all that sort of stuff. But then there's this political level as well, uh, which is figuring more and more. And uh, I think we're we're looking at us are seeing a situation at the moment where uh, people like Lord Frost, who's leading on the British side. It seems to me to be working towards a situation where he's trying to collapse almost everything that has been agreed, to try to force a new uh, a discussion, maybe even up to a, a substantially changed agreement, Brexit agreement. The reason for that, because they are beginning to they're not fools, they can see quite clearly that the impact of Brexit is a lot more than was sold to the public, it's, uh, it, it carries a lot more pain than was actually communicated in advance of either the, the, uh, the ballot on it or in the, in the discussion subsequently until it was agreed. Uh, so there's, there's, there's kind of those two dimensions. Ireland then has this other dimension, which is the border and the Irish Sea question with, with inverted commas. And I think that we have to be very careful that, that uh, the, the, we don't wind up reimposing a border within the country. So to make that happen, I think we have to be uh, engaging right across the system. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons that there's um, um, sort of, uh, it's important to try to engage with all uh, uh, points of view in uh, Northern Ireland, uh, particularly, uh, on what the the future there may be. Uh, Because I think that a lot of what's happening since the uh, arrival of Brexit, is not really necessarily uh, tied to the actual, impl- uh, out- is not an actual necessary outcome of Brexit, but the decisions of suppliers and so on, not to continue with contracts that they had or not to renew them or to delay them or whatever the story may be. And maybe they just weren't ready in the first place. Uh, so I think we need to be careful about what's going on there. Um, but it's going to be a huge challenge and it, It'll become more so are uh, more obvious to us, I think, uh, as a society, and maybe to the British too, uh, once the COVID uh, pandemic recedes, uh, as it will at some point, uh, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but whatever. Uh, but when it does recede, we're going to see Brexit much bigger than it maybe is figuring in a lot of people's consciousness at the moment. Critical issue. Thanks, John. Now,
1: Susan, there's a question here I might direct towards you looking at uh, uh, changes to the tax system that are needed to support the provision of quality home units for all and to stop homelessness So I, mo- I know you mentioned site value tax there in your proposal but you might go into a bit more detail
0: I suppose a lot of that's probably been covered off in the I mean your, your, your tax take is your tax take you know that kind of thing so I suppose anything to do with increasing tax I do I, I, I think Colette and yourself and Sean have probably already kind of covered off um you know that the, as Sean said, like you know, we need to increase our tax take and we need to broaden our tax base, and then it, like every resource that's scarce, <laughs> it'll be a question of how you actually allocate it. Um, so I, I I don't I don't I don't think I need to go back over um, the, the the tax side of it. I mean, in terms of building social housing, I mean we can't afford not to. You know, really is 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 the answer to that. I think. Um, the money is being spent on homelessness provision on emergency accommodation. I mean, the figures there, they're all in the book. There's startling amounts of money being spent on cure when prevention, as everybody knows, is, is really the way to go. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I mean, the, in terms of tax take, I think it's it's the same, it's the same I suppose, the issues that would, would, would crop up. And then where, where you spend that money then is, is a separate thing.
1: Thanks, Suzanne. Now, Sean, there's an issue here from Stephanie McDermott. I think she's had to leave, but the issue about how marginal communities are are really uh, suffering at the moment. I suppose going to the issue then of social dialogue and making sure everyone's voices are heard and uh, the value of the community community and voluntary sector, you might comment on that.
2: I I think the critical issue here is that uh, there is a need for a new social contract. I, I think any analysis that is comprehensive of Ireland today and looks at the actual evidence recognises that we've been facing not just in the last 12 months a whole series of, of uh, quite serious challenges for quite some time and we have not been doing that well about it. And both Coretta and myself mentioned this thing about um, you know from boom to bust to boom to bust and we have to stop it. Michelle, you talked about uh, the poverty levels and the fact that so many kids are, are, in, are below the, in households with incomes below the poverty line. Suzanne talked about homelessness and and families living in a single room and the kind of implications of that for a long time. Like there are, these are issues that were there before COVID. People see that now. We have an opportunity to do something about it. We have a recognition as well um, for for the first time in quite a while that the government actually, as an agency, has the capacity to make serious difference uh, when it chooses to do so. And while there was a lot of, Putting down of government and uh, a lot of disparaging comments maybe about it in, in, in recent times and over over the past decade or two at the same time you now realize uh, with the with COVID, no other agency could have actually mobilized the response that was required to actually deal with it we're in a similar situation and that's why government needs to drive social dialogue and it needs to ensure that the social dialogue produces a social contract that stops the exclusion it stops the poverty. That ends the, in, the inequality in that, that is to, and the deprivation that is dividing our society so deeply. Yeah. Now, I, I take the point that you may not ever be in a position where you could eliminate everything, all poverty and you know, all deprivation, but you can do a heck of a lot better than we're doing at the moment. And we could do that, but to do it, we need a vision of where we want to go that people can sign off on and that people can agree on. They might not they might agree on everything, but they will agree, yes, that, that direction is the one we want to go on. That's what the social contract does, an agreement on that. But to, get to, to achieve that, you need, some, uh, you need a social dialogue with all the of, all of viewpoints engaged, uh, competing, as was mentioned earlier, on a level basis, uh, on an equal basis, and working, sharing all the evidence and all the experience uh, that's there try to work out a pathway towards that type of future where there would, be, there would be a huge reduction in inequality, in poverty, in deprivation, in exclusion. The other kinds of things that can be done, can be delivered. Uh, and I would suggest respectfully that uh, the time to do it is now.
1: Thanks, Sean. So just a reminder for anyone, before we, we wrap up now, because I'm conscious, it is 10 past two. Um, uh, If anybody does have any other questions put them either in the Q&A or the chat uh, function, Uh, there's a comment there uh, from Alex again, I suppose, making the point that we shouldn't worry too much about income loss from fossil fuel taxation, because we should also welcome that we'll no longer uh, have to find the money to pay for those fuels either, I suppose that is the flip side of that. There's benefits. to that, but you have to make sure you you support those communities, regions and people who are going to be most impacted and particularly those who are most vulnerable, who will be particularly impacted there. So you might just answer one question for me before we go. You said at the beginning that lessons had been learned since 2008 and, you know, this time around government didn't make the choice between society and economy. It was able to protect both. And so how can we build on that? How can we build on the experience of the past 12 months and Make sure we don't get back to space in 12 months time that we're talking about reducing the deficit but we're actually looking at how we might implement real change
2: i suppose that the first piece in that michelle the first part of it is that we have to recognize that what we did a dozen years ago was was the wrong option now the imf believes it's the wrong option others most of the major economists in the world believe that the wrong options were taken at that time uh, austerity is not the solution uh, Austerity caused huge damage. Uh, it caused, in Ireland, hundreds of thousands of people to lose their jobs unnecessarily. If, uh, now, just to make a point, we were making this point, social justice Ireland was making this point 10 years ago, when the thing was happening. It was not, this isn't all retrospective kind of analysis that we're talking about now, but it, what we were saying at the time was actually valid. And um, now what happened this time is uh, with, with, when the pandemic hit, is governments did not make that mistake again. What they did was they borrowed substantially, they organized at the European level and in other contexts and uh, uh, other countries as well, not just not like the United States and, Britain and so on, outside the EU, they were, were organizing as well. And the result was that countries faced up to the fact that they had to put society and uh, the economy ahead of austerity and balancing the books. Now, how to deal with that? From day one of the pandemic, we, uh, in the first week or two after it was actually uh, had arrived back in March last, we uh, issued a statement and we put out some analysis to show that what should be done uh, was that all of, that there was going to be very substantial debt associated with the COVID reality over the next few years. All of that data should, COVID related debt, should be warehoused for all of the EU countries, for example, together. And that should be warehoused in Brussels and follow uh, the process that had been. Think of it as going on a war footing. And few, uh, most people don't realize that the, that Britain paid back the last of its borrowing for the First World War debt, or from the First World War. They paid it back just a few years ago. It took 90 years to pay it back. That's the kind of thing we should be thinking about for COVID-related debt. Warehouse it in Brussels. Pay back the interest of in a small, very small amount of capital year by year. And then the, what we see is we do actually have the capacity uh, to, to actually proceed. We have lessons to learn about the, the capacity of government to do stuff. And that doesn't mean that you throw money at it. It means that you obviously get value for money. Um, but also it needs we need, there's a very good publication in the last week uh, from the Arachtus um, budget office. Um, and they have shown that the debt that is coming down the line in the next 10 years is not on the scale that is generally thought uh, to be the case. In actual fact, that we're a- we will be able to handle the debt. And I think that's very important because the, the contrasting view is articulated this morning in, in interviews in, in newspapers by uh, the, the chair of the Fiscal, the fiscal Advisory Council. Who's basically going on already about what you're talking about coming next year, Michelle? Like that, we're going to have to be looking back and saying, oh, oh, God, we have to pay our way, we have to pay back the debt, we have to cut back. In actual fact, they're showing we can actually handle the debt. And I think that's the way we should proceed. Now, obviously, then we have to use that money wisely. The critical issue is that we have choices at this moment. And the, the, as I was saying earlier, like our the shape of our future for decades will be decided in the next couple of years. Basically, how, our decisions on how to exit the pandemic and what we're going to do going forward will actually shape the whole thing or reshape uh, the whole thing, depending on what we actually do. We have the opportunity, we, and I think we, ha- we actually will have the resources. We certainly have, I think, capacity and so on, but what we need is a vision, or to put that in place, our social contract, and a process our social dialogue, and put that into place and drive forward uh, to sort of deal with the thing that those major challenges we've failed to deal with over, the, over a number of decades. And I think it is doable, and it would be a tremendous achievement for this generation to actually deliver on it. It's there, it can be done. I think that's what we should be doing in the years immediately ahead.
1: Thanks, Sean. Uh, I don't see any of the questions coming through in the Q&A and the chat. So, Sean, I'll just let you wrap up. But just to let everybody know, uh, you'll get an email with a link to the publication uh, after the webinar and it will be up on our website as well. So
2: thanks, Michelle. Uh, Just a few words to say a very sincere thank you uh, to the team in Social Justice Ireland and especially to Michelle, uh, who has put an enormous amount of work into putting all of this together. She's the lead person on the socio-economic review. Um, uh, uh, but all of us actually contribute in fairness. And one of the things you do in Social Justice Ireland is everybody does everything. But, um, the, as, uh, uh, but it's important that we, we all make our contribution. That's what, what I think I just wanted to, rec- to acknowledge um, because maybe uh, those of you still with us, and there's quite a number of you are still there, uh, I, I, you may not realize that this publication that we're launching is actually 420 pages long. We didn't tell you that in the beginning, or you probably decided we'd be here for a week presenting it. But anyway, um, 420 pages. As Michelle says, it will be up on the website uh, for download. You're getting an email about that very soon in the, in the next very short while. The critical uh, issue, uh, from my perspective, is to say thanks to the team. It's a wonderful achievement. And just bear in mind, a whole thing was done working from home. The whole team working from home the whole time as we've been working from home now for more, just over a year and uh, uh, we haven't been back in the office at all. So it's, uh, I, I think it's been a wonderful achievement. I'm very happy with it. I hope everybody uh, who has spent time with us and it, uh, that it's been worth your while being with us, we're delighted that you're prepared to spend the time and be with us uh, as we as walk we, uh, through uh, the, the, the presentation and the, the questions and so on. And we're very, very happy, uh, obviously, to provide this, uh, this socio review view uh, for people to read and ponder and so on. One final question or one final issue. If people are interested in any parts of it, if you have questions, uh, if there's things you'd need to, um, to sort of raise or whatever with us, don't hesitate to send us uh, an email. and. Uh, You'll have the email in the, uh, in the email that you get very soon. You can respond to that. And uh, we'll do our best to respond, uh, obviously. We're a small team, but uh, we'll do the very best we can. So, listen, thanks to the team, and thanks to you uh, for being with us uh, the last, uh, what is it, uh, an hour and a quarter, whatever. Okay. Thank you very, very much. We'll see you again in the not-too-distant future, hopefully. Thank you. Thank
0: you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you want to know more you can find our socioeconomic review Social Justice Matters 2021 on our website www.socialjustice.ie. Come back again for more 10-minute lessons and other podcasts in our interview and seminar series and if you have any ideas for future podcasts feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Thank you.